on this episode of the London Lyceum, we have Dr. Eric Hagedorn talk to us about William of Ockham. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Ockham, what are his main theological and philosophical contributions, and then we dig really into some of his specific contributions such as voluntarism, uh, debate on universals, nominalism, What his? why is he the villain of every theological story? Is that really a fair understanding of him? Why should we care about medieval thinkers like Occam and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking seriously, we've decided or endeavored really to try to promote a sort of an intellectual culture that is full of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, a sort of cheerful confessionalism. So when we think about all those things together, really the, the main point of that is we think if you want to be a serious thinker, you got to have certain intellectual dispositions and virtues and as you do it. You can't just be a total jerk and be a really serious thinker. You actually have to display charity and to say, I want to examine someone else's views in a way that they would understand and say, yes, I sign off. That is exactly what I believe. But we don't, all, we don't think that having a commitment to charity means you can't actually critique somebody. So you can actually say, I disagree with you for reason X, Y, Z. You just do it in a manner of honesty and, and kindness and uh, that respects the other person and treats them uh, with honor. And we think that's the way that Christians should act. So we're trying to promote those sort of things. Now, I'm super, super excited about this episode. So we've got Dr. Eric Hegedorn with us to talk about William of Ockham. So I have been looking for an Ockham scholar to talk to us about Ockham for I feel like the, since the beginning of the podcast. So I'm super pumped about this. Um, before we jump into this, though, uh, Dr. Hagedorn, can you give me just think, I mean, you don't have to go five minutes on this, but think, you know, brief like bio for you. So where are you at now? What made you interested in Occam? Those sort of things. And then we can sort of jump in. Sure. Uh, thanks so much, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on the show. Um, I've listened to some past episodes and uh, really appreciate what you do. Um, so like, I, like you said, I'm Eric Hagedorn. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at St. Norbert College, which is in De Pere, Wisconsin, a little Catholic liberal arts school just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, I've been there for about 10 years. I did my graduate degree at the University of Notre Dame, where I wrote a dissertation on Occam. Um, and back then, my dissertation was on Occam's relationship to um, some trends in contemporary analytic philosophy, especially contemporary philosophy of mind and language. And in the 10 years since, I've continued working on Occam, but I've kind of crept more and more into the historian side of things, especially um, thinking about his, his theology and his ethics is a lot of what I do today. As for how I got here in the first place, uh, kind of a strange and long story, one of those weird historical contingencies. So I was an undergraduate philosophy major at Iowa State University. And it just so happened to be there were a bunch of other philosophy majors who were Thomists, who were real big fans of Thomas Aquinas. And at the time, I was, uh, uh, I was really into contemporary analytic philosophy, reading people like Al Plantinga and William Alston. And I and these other philosophy majors who were Thomists never quite seemed, could see eye to eye. We could never even really talk to each other very well. 
And so I just started reading a bunch of medieval philosophy on the side just to be able to talk to them. Um, and I think they'd all be sad now uh, to know that I didn't really fall under the spell of Thomas Aquinas, but um, really kind of fell in love with John Duns Scotus and William Ockham, of all people. And so um, I got into graduate school at Notre Dame, and when I was at Notre Dame, uh, pieces just kind of fell together. Um, I kind of got, got to work with uh, Richard Cross, who's one of the world's great Scotus scholars, um, who I think you've had on the program before. Uh, and uh, I got to write my dissertation under on Occam under this great Skoda scholar, and that's just sort of how I came to be here today. Before we get into the the uh, thinking of William of Occam, let's uh, start with just who he was uh, as a man. Some biographical information for those who aren't familiar with him at all. Sure. So this is maybe going to be a little bit longer than uh, than a traditional bio for a medieval thinker. Um, in my opinion, Occam is really sort of in the running for the bronze medal of great medieval biographies. I mean, Peter Abelard absolutely wins the gold here. Um, if you don't know anything about the story of Peter Abelard, you should go read the wiki page. It's fantastic. There's sex and betrayal and tr all sorts of wild things in Peter Abelard's life. Um, Augustine, of course, clearly wins the silver. But, you know, Occam's got a strong case for the bronze. Uh, so William of Ockham, he was born in the 1380s or so, um, in or around what is the village of Ockham in England. At some point in time, he joins the Franciscan order. He goes to Oxford to get his graduate degree in theology, and that's really the first time we see him in the historical map, is when he's giving um, the equivalent of sort of his doctoral dissertation at Oxford. Um, and it turns out the academic job market was just as bad in the 13, uh, in the, in the early, I, sorry, I said born in the 1380s, born in the 1280s, sorry, off by a century. Um, but it turns out the academic job market in the early 1300s was just about as bad as it is now. Um, so he finishes his dissertation or the equivalent thereof at Oxford, and everybody would have expected him to get a job teaching theology at Oxford. But instead, he gets a position at the sort of the equivalent of the local Franciscan Junior College in London. Um, and he spends his time teaching uh, Aristotle's logic and Aristotle's physics to undergrad Franciscans before they go on to take theology at Oxford, before they go on to do their graduate work. And it seems like he probably thought that would be sort of a short stint before he got to go on to Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere. But instead, what happens is there, there's this sort of long series of repeated questioning of his orthodoxy. Um, turns out a lot of people were really, really uh, nervous about some of the things he said during his graduate lectures at Oxford. Um, so it starts off some of the fellow teachers at the school in London start questioning some of his doctrines. And then there's actually a, a, a provincial chapter of the Franciscan order held to investigate, hey, is Occam actually completely orthodox with respect to a few different things? The chancellor of Oxford gets involved. And there are a bunch of questions about like Occam's views on the nature of grace, on the metaphysics of the Eucharist and the other sacraments. And so everybody's kind of a little bit of wary um, of some of his theological views. And somehow these complaints reach all the way to the papal court, which this is the period when the papacy has moved to Avignon in the south of France for 60 or 70 years. 
And so Occam gets summoned to the papal court and there's an official committee held to figure out whether this guy's actually a heretic. So committee gets called in 1324, Occam shows up and the committee meets and after about a year, they release a report which basically says, well, some of his views are, are false and others are probably poorly stated, but there's no heresy here. There's nothing outright. We're just going to let him revise his views. This is sort of the, the medieval equivalent of getting a bad book review. Like you're told, okay, you should, you should do some revisions here, um, clean some things up. And Occam actually goes off and starts doing some of those revisions of his work, um, cleaning up some passages that were sort of poorly stated. Probably he would have even agreed. But for whatever reason, the committee gets reconvened somebody orders them, no, 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 saying he said a few false things and needs to restate is not good enough. You need to go after this guy. And so a sec the committee releases a second report saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of those things that the first time we said were true, those are actually probably heretical. So no, he, he is, in fact, put, putting forward heretical views. Um, and then in sort of at the same time, but completely separate... There's this broader dispute that I'm not going to get into because it would take us an hour. But there's this huge dispute going on between the Franciscan order and the Pope generally. The Franciscans and the Pope don't see eye to eye. And while Occam's in Avignon, the minister general of the Franciscan order, a guy named Michael Chesena, um, the, the minister general comes to him and says, hey, hey, hey. You know, the Franciscans, we and the Pope, we've been having some tiffs lately. I was hoping you could be our sort of resident logician and linguist-in-chief. Can you read some of these papal documents and tell us how we should respond? And here I'm just going to quote what Occam himself says in the first person, what happened next. So he says, quote, At the command of a superior... I read and diligently studied three of John's constitutions. This is Pope John the Twenty Second. Uh, I read three of his constitutions, or rather, his heretical destitutions. In these, I found so many things that were heretical, erroneous, silly, ridiculous, fantastic, insane, and further, defamatory, contrary, and adverse to the orthodox faith, good morals, natural reasons, certain experience, and fraternal charity. Because of all these errors and heresies, I withdraw from the obedience of this pseudo-pope and all who support him to the prejudice of orthodox faith. So this is like one of the very few things we actually have from Occam in the first personal tense. Clearly, he uh, got a little riled up. What happens in the middle of the night, uh, May 26, 1328, almost, um, almost the day we're having this interview, um, Occam and a bunch of other Franciscans, they, get on, they hire a boat in the middle of the night, flee the papal court, they, uh, they sail to Italy where the Holy Roman Emperor is, the Holy Roman Emperor is having his own tiff with the Pope, they come before the Holy Roman Emperor, they say, will you grant us asylum from the Pope? Um, there's, a uh, there's an apocryphal, almost certainly apocryphal story that Occam says something like, if you defend me with your sword, I will defend you with my pen. I mean, okay, he probably didn't actually say that, but it makes for great historical narrative, right? Um, and the Holy Roman Emperor grants them asylum, and Occam 
basically on a dime stops writing about logic, about natural philosophy, about theology, and he spends the rest of his life writing on political and ecclesiastical topics. Questions about the nature of heresy, about the role of power between pope and emperor, about sort of what the politics of Christendom should look like. And he's in exile. He gets excommunicated almost immediately. Like, they flee Avignon, and a week later they're excommunicated already. Um, and uh, the pope dies, and the next pope says, Hey, Franciscans, if you want to come back, all you have to do is recant and apologize, you can come back. Most of them go back. Occam stays. Occam says, I'm not recanting. I believe everything I said. And he stays in exile in Munich for 20 years, uh, writing, um, writing all these political works. And then he dies in 1347, right before the Black Plague sweeps through. So that's, that's Occam's biography in five, ten minutes. <laughs> well, every time I hear something like this about somebody from the past, I'm like, why didn't these guys have access to something like Twitter? Because it would have been just fantastic <laughs> to see all the things they said. Um, Indeed. So there's there's like, I think a lot of things as far as his sort of contributions, particularly philosophical and theological, that I think would be interesting. Um, the two that I'm most interested in, I think, are probably voluntarism and then his understanding of universals. But maybe before we talk about them, you mentioned he did a lot of stuff in political theory. I mean, like, w what other main contributions does he make besides those sort sort of things? Yeah. Um so, yeah, I'm not an expert on Occam's political theory, to be honest. It's one of the things, actually, I kind of hope to get into someday, and I've sort of started delving into those works a little bit. But um, in particular, I know one of, some of the things he's really known for um, is he works out a pretty uh, elaborate theory of separation of powers, especially as near as I can tell, he's one of the first persons in the Christian tradition to really think a lot about separating out religious authority from secular authority into separate spheres of authority, um, kind of like Luther later does. Um, although one of the things that's sort of interesting about Occam is he sort of wants to think about having giving each side sort of limited veto power over the other. So he thinks about what happens if you get a tyrant in the role of the Holy Roman Emperor. And he actually thinks, well, maybe there's actually role for the church to somehow be able to step in on that rare occasion and depose if you've got a tyrannical emperor. What do you do if you have a heretical pope? Well, maybe the secular authority should have this weird sort of power that they can actually step in and depose a pope in certain rare situations. Um, he, so he sort of thinks about separation of powers. He spends a lot of time worrying about individual rights, especially freedom of conscience and freedom of speech, um, given the fact that he was a, a little bit of a firebrand and someone whose views were uh, a little bit outside the norm. You can understand why that would have been uh, uh, an interest to him. Um, if you're interested in following up on this, actually, one thing I would direct listeners to, there was a great article published just last year in Franciscan Studies by a guy named Daniel Brooks that you can sum up Occam's, he sums up Occam's political thought in like a good 20 pages, just a single nice journal article that's by Daniel Brooks. It's like the politics of Occam or something like that. Um, Franciscan Studies 2020, 2021. Um, but yeah, so if you want to know more, go read Brooks. So maybe we can we can shift the discussion now to um, theological voluntarism. So maybe define that for us first, for those who don't know what that is, and then Occam's relationship to it. Um, is he an inherent of that view, um, et cetera? Good. 
Thanks, thanks. Um, yeah, so people use the, vol the word voluntarism in a lot of different ways. Um, sometimes, as near as I can tell, it's sometimes used just to mean theological views I don't like. So I think it's actually really important to define carefully what voluntarism is before you can actually talk about whether somebody's um, an adherent of it or not. So at least as I would define the view, I would start with voluntarism broadly and then this uh, more specific category of what we might call divine voluntarism that you asked about. So voluntarism broadly, it's helpful to contrast it with another view that is really prominent in the Middle Ages that we might call intellectualism. So medieval thinkers generally uh, divide minds, whether human minds or angelic or even God's mind, um, into intellect and will. So ev almost every single medieval philosopher will think the human mind is You've got your intellect and you've got your will. And the difference between those thinkers we label voluntarists and those we label intellectualists is whether or not the intellect or the will takes center stage in explanations of how we act, of what makes right actions right, what heavenly bliss consists in, and so on. And this, it's not a binary dispute. It's, a, of, course, sort of, of course, a spectrum. Everybody agrees that the intellect and will both have roles to play, but it's really about which gets the emphasis in those explanations. And for, like, example, Thomas Aquinas is somebody you would generally put on the intellectualist side of that divide. Um, he thinks heavenly bliss consists in the act of seeing God. It's your intellect. Encountering God is sort of what's the core part of the beatific vision for him. Um, for Aquinas, you have to talk a lot about the intellect and explaining human action. Um, deliberation is primarily a rational intellectual process that results in action. Occam, on the other hand, is really on sort of the far edge of the voluntarist camp. I mean, if there's anybody who sort of deserves the label of just pure voluntarist, um, it might be Occam. So um, he thinks that so one thing, Occam thinks your will is sort of empowered to choose to love or hate almost absolutely anything. I shouldn't t I should take out the almost. Occam thinks your will has the power to love or hate anything, period. If you can conceive of it, you can choose to love it or you can choose to hate it. Um, and that's in contrast to somebody like Aquinas who wants to say, you can only love something that you perceive to be good in some way. Your intellect needs to see good in it and then you can love it. Or your intellect needs to see evil in it and then you can hate it. Um, if you saw something as purely good, it'd be impossible to hate. For Aquinas, Occam says, no, you can see all the good there is in the thing, and you can still, your will can just choose, I'm going to hate this thing. Um, and then, like, further for Occam, he thinks volitional activities like desiring and choosing, those are somehow better, superior, more important than intellectual activities like perceiving and believing. So when Occam talks about heavenly bliss, it's all about the love of God. It's all about sort of the choice to embrace God more so than just the seeing of God, these sorts of things. So that's voluntarism. Now, you asked a question about divine voluntarism or theological voluntarism. That's the further claim that sort of this voluntarist account really applies to God as well. And that when we think about God's act activity, we should sort of prioritize will over intellect. 
And in particular, one of the ways theological voluntarism often gets used these days is the view that, our, that uh, uh, the moral order, moral norms are somehow up to the divine will as well. So that like actions are morally obligatory just because the divine will chooses that they be so. Um, so in a lot of area, in lots of places, this view is sometimes called divine command ethics. Some people call it theological voluntarism. But so up to the, it's to the theological voluntarist, like it's up to God's fiat. It's up to God's choice whether or not taking another person's possessions is going to be morally wrong. As a matter of fact, the theological voluntarist might say, God forbade theft, but God could have made a different choice. He could have made it that theft was morally permissible or maybe even morally obligatory. So over the last 30 years or so, there have been a lot of scholarly articles written over whether Occam's a full-blooded theological voluntarist, or is there like some deeper non-voluntarist streak in his ethics too? And just on the surface of things, if you just read Occam sort of straightforwardly, he certainly sounds like a committed theological voluntarist. So um, there's an infamous passage, uh, a couple of infamous, infamous passages, where Occam argues that if God wanted to, God could have made it the case that like stealing, murdering, or even hating God were the actions that got you into heaven. So as a matter of fact, God said, oh, to get into heavens, you should perform the sacraments and you should um, uh, uh, accept me in this sort of way and love me. But Occam seems to say, if God had chosen otherwise, God could have said, you know what? If you want to get into heaven, steal from people, murder people, hate me, that's your ticket in. You can see why that was one of the things that, uh, that the papal commission found really disturbing and worrisome. Um, and Occam seems to have a deep reason why he says these things. Um, so the core reason that he gives throughout is he makes this claim repeatedly throughout his ethical writings. He insists, God is indebted to no one. And if you sort of read uh, Occam's ethical theory, Occam thinks to say that something is wrong is to say, or to, to say that something is right or wrong is always in some way to say that there's a debt to someone. Disrespecting my parents is wrong for me because I have an obligation to show them respect. I am indebted to my parents and that's why I ought not disrespect them or whatever. But God's indebted to no one, Occam insists. And so that just means for him, and he follows up and says this, there's absolutely nothing God can do that would be wrong. Any action of God's is always right because God has no debts. And so there's nothing that God could sort of, no debt God could fail to fulfill. And so it seems like Occam is a committed theological voluntarist. God can just command any action without it being contrary to his justice or his goodness. And Occam follows this up and he says, and this is like why God can tell the Israelites to rob from the Egyptians when they leave in the Exodus. It's why God can tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Somebody like Thomas Aquinas finds those examples really difficult. And like Thomas Aquinas has this whole story where God, un, uh, sort of unknowingly to the Egyptians, God transferred ownership of all of those things from the Egyptians to the Israelites first. So the Israelites weren't robbing the Egyptians. The Israelites were taking what was rightfully theirs, payment for past services rendered or something like this. Whereas Occam just says, the text says, God said, despoil the Egyptians. And that's just proof that God can command to rob.
Well, I, I think I can see why some people are uncomfortable with it, but at the same time, there are certain things that, like you explained, that I'm like, I think people would have intuitions that would be at least somewhat similar to that. But I, I also want to spend some time on his theory of universals because, at least in my circles, this is the one that gets talked about a lot now. So maybe can you give me just high level, like what are the main positions on the debate and then where does Occam fit in this? Yeah, so um, because I don't quite know exactly where your listeners are, how much philosophy they've had in the past, I'm going to sort of start pretty close to square one here. So what are universals? So let's start with just like the basic facts of kind membership. I'm a human being. Jordan, you're a human being. Brandon, you're a human being. What makes that the case? What makes it the case that all three of us fall under this common kind, human being? So one answer that goes back to the dawn of Western philosophy is this. There is some single entity, call it human nature, which all three of us are appropriately related to. And I use the phrase appropriately related because it turns out specifying that relation is hard and difficult and controversial. But, um, but according to this view, it's in virtue of the fact that all of us are appropriately related to human nature that makes the three of us human beings. Um, and further, to like use a, a particularly medieval example, much the same goes for various kinds of properties. So the stop sign is red. I've got a book here on my desk that's red. What makes it the case that both of those things are red? Well, there's a single universal entity, call it redness, that every individual patch of red is also appropriately related to. So in the history of philosophy, there's been a variety of way, a variety of attempts to try to make sense of what universals are. So Plato famously thought that they were some kind of non-physical object that existed in a separate immaterial realm. Plato's forms, sometimes we joke and call it Plato's heaven is the place where the forms are or whatever. But the idea is these things are non-physical, they're not part of the material world. And the relationship between the three of us and human nature is something like resemblance or representation we're appropriately similar to or we appropriately represent the human nature and that's what makes us be human. Um, Augustine kind of really liked the idea of Plato's forms but wanted to say that the forms are ideas in God's mind. And so what makes it the case that we're all human is something like that God created us by means of that idea. The idea of human nature, God's idea of human nature, was importantly involved in our creation in a way it wasn't importantly involved in like the stop signs creation or whatever. Um, don't ask me what Aristotle himself thought about this matter. I don't want to get into that rabbit hole. It's hard, it's confusing, it's difficult. It gets you into the central books of the metaphysics, which are a mess. But setting aside Aristotle himself, at least some parts of the Aristotelian tradition which are sort of really important in like the lead up into Occam. Um, some parts of the Aristotelian tradition wanted to say universals exist as what the medievals called common natures. They're concrete parts of ordinary individual entities like me, uh, like us. So according to these Aristotelians, whether Aristotle himself said this, let's not worry about it. But according to these Aristotelians, like there's exactly one human nature and the relationship here is it's parthood in some important sense. So the human nature is a part of me, and it's a part of Jordan, and it's a part of Brandon. And 
you can locate the human nature. So Plato wanted to say forms, universals are not in the material world, but these Aristotelians would want to say, no, 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 the human nature is like right here in this chair. And it's there in that chair over there. So it's a, a single entity that's somehow multiply located in space-time. So that's what universals are. They're supposed to be these commonalities that explain kind membership. Maybe they're transcendent. Maybe they're imminent. Whatever. Occam's view is Occam is famously what's called a nominalist about universals. Um, he's not the first. That goes to Peter Abelard or maybe some of Peter Abelard's immediate predecessors. Um, and kind of like voluntarism, nominalism is also one of those philosophical terms that's a dirty word in some camps. Um, people attach a lot of extra baggage to it. But the core meaning of it, at least as I use it, certainly in this context, the core meaning of nominalism is just this. Occam denies there are any universal entities of that sort. There are no Platonic forms. There are no Aristotelian common natures. When you want to talk about the extra mental world outside of minds, for Occam, everything that exists is singular and individual all the way down. It has no common parts. There are no extra commonalities floating around in Plato's heaven. There's you. There's me. There's the stop sign. There's the book. There's the, red, the redness of the stop sign and the redness of the book. And that's it. Now, that's sort of the negative thesis. That's the metaphysical part of his views. And that's, like, importantly, the easy part. It's easy to just have this negative thesis that you say there's this entity. I don't think there is. It's not clear you have great evidence for it. There's no sensory evidence for the thing. It's not clear your arguments uh, go through. So I deny that there is that entity. That's sort of the easy part. The hard part for Occam, and I think what makes him a particularly good and interesting nominalist in the history of philosophy, is that he takes that as uh, 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 he takes that as the impetus to work on and create an epistemology and a philosophy of mind that's supposed to explain how we understand and talk about the world, even if there aren't any of commonalities. So, um, to not get to just say a few things more here. So, um, so Occam thinks that there are all these individual entities out there. And then there is this thing that is sort of general or common. In minds, there are general concepts. So our minds, human minds, angelic minds, probably God's minds too. God's mind too, but he doesn't talk about that. He doesn't go there. But at least our minds are such that when you look at the stop sign and when you look at the book on my desk, you form a general concept, a general concept of red that is importantly applicable to all those individual rednesses. And then the story is like, why do we form general concepts? If there's no commonality in nature, how does that come from? And here his story is a little patchier than you would like it to be, but I think the core of the story is something like this. Um, those two patches of redness are, he says, maximally similar. They're as similar in reality as any two things could be. And likewise, the three of us, me, Jordan, Brandon, we're somehow importantly maximally similar, as similar as any two things can be. We're more similar to each of each other than any of us are similar to the book or to, you know, the whiteboard behind me or something like that. And But what makes them similar? 
and this is like, I think this is really the core nominalist thesis here. This is what really makes somebody a nominalist. Occam just says, brute similarities don't have deeper metaphysical explanation. There's no further explanation than that. The thing that really sets the nominalist apart from people like Plato and Aristotle and the rest, the realist about universals wants to explain similarities in terms of identity. Plato and Socrates are similar because they share one and the same human nature. Every, every realist at the end of the day says similarity is somehow reducible to a fact about identity. Occam's claim is just similarity doesn't need to be explained. He kind of says at length, he argues at length, once God's created Plato and once God's created Socrates, there's absolutely nothing left for God to do to make them similar. And further, there's nothing God could do to make them dissimilar. They just sort of have this similarity in kind membership, but that's just all there is to it. And it's just a brute fact about their nature as individuals. So that's the theory of universals. That's sort of where Occam fits in as a nominalist. Um, maybe one broader question, maybe one broader thing to say for maybe our listeners, why does this matter? Um, so this is a pretty esoteric part of um, the philosophy of metaphysics. Um, if you really want to get into it, you have to really read into the middle chapters of Aristotle's metaphysics. And like I said, that's kind of a nightmare and a mess at for, for students. Um, so why does this matter? Well, there are a number, especially of contemporary critics of Occam, not so often philosophers, sometimes philosophers, but more so theologians and even some popular political writers. Um, who make claims and say things like Occam's nominalism or nominalism generally means there's no order to the universe, there are no fixed moral norms, humans can redefine our relationships and ourselves as we see fit. You see these sorts of claims made in um, certain sort of popular cultural writers. Um, over the last, uh, over the 10 years I've been doing this, I've seen a number of writers claim things like that Occam seven centuries ago is somehow importantly responsible for the legalization of same-sex marriage or for movements to redefine or abolish traditional gender roles or something like this. Um, I have to admit, maybe this is a failure of my own uh, ingenuity, but I don't understand many of these complaints. Or I certainly don't understand them as criticisms of nominalism. Um, the mere fact that there isn't a universal human nature in addition to the three of us doesn't imply that there aren't objective facts about what it means to be human. Occam thinks there are such objective facts, and they, they're just sort of much more brute, and they don't reduce to a fact about human nature. They're facts about the three of us as individuals. Um, now, maybe the case is that, oh, nominalism sets you on this path that somehow Locke, maybe John Locke features into, and maybe other later nominalist writers that get us there. Um, but then I were I think maybe nominalism isn't the problem, but maybe it's some there's some additional premises that are being added to make this sort of um, broader case. But so I guess I have sort of a, a theological question on this. I mean, yeah. I know Occam is basically the villain of every theological story. It seems <laughs> um, when if we take a nominalist understanding of human nature, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but my as you were talking about it, I started thinking, does this create sort of problems for the incarnation and salvation? 
So if Christ needs to take on a human nature, if there isn't such a thing as a human nature, like how does that end up working? Okay, that's a great question. Um, one, I am not sufficiently theologically astute to maybe give the full answer to. But let me sort of gesture in that direction, at least maybe. Um, so already, at least some of those views, um, some not all views about universals, all realist views about universals are going to be equally um, uh, helpful to the incarnation to begin with. So if you are a Platonist about universals, to say that Christ became human just is to say he somehow came to resemble or uh, 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 he came to resemble the human nature to stand in the appropriate similarity relationship to that. Well, the nominalist can tell basically the same story. What happened is Christ took on a physical, somehow Christ became united to a human intellect, a human will to this sort of physical form. And so now he bears all the same appropriate similarity relationships that he might have borne to the universal human nature in the Platonic sense. Um, now, maybe what we want, we want a sort of quasi-Aristotelian story that what happens when Christ becomes incarnate is he takes on as a concrete part the human nature itself in some way that, according to sort of the broadly medieval Aristotelian account, that that concrete human nature is a part of each of us. I think that's maybe sounds more satisfying, but then you have sort of all the difficulties of explaining what it is for an abstract object to be a part of a concrete object, how this thing gets multiply located, what we say about it. So um, while I don't think the nominalist, um, I don't think the nominalist necessarily faces unique issues in the incarnation. I think everybody's got complicated stories to tell about the hypostatic union, about what it is for Christ to take on a human nature, and for that still to be the case when the body's in the tomb and things like this. So, Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, one thing I, I really wanted you to cash out a little bit, you don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but where, I mean, how similar is Occam to other people like Thomas Aquinas, to Bonaventure, to Scotus? Um, I mean, in my circles right now, Thomas Aquinas is the, like, he is so hot right now. Um, so if you've seen Zoolander, I feel like that, it, like, you know, he's saying like Hansel, he's so hot right now. That's Thomas Aquinas. I, I mean, I'm probably Thomistic-ish. Uh, I'm, I think I lean more Thomas than I do Scotus or Bonaventure, but I'm curious, like, what, what are the similarities and main differences? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, that's a huge question. It's probably unanswerable in a book, let alone a, a you know, half-hour podcast interview. Um, but I think there actually is one key point, both of comparison and contrast, at least the way I read him. And um, I like to think that, you know, my rating of Occam is right, but I know not everybody quite reads him exactly the same way I do. But um, at least as I read Occam, so he's a devout Christian and he's a dedicated Aristotelian. Um, and there are plenty of readers of Occam who would dispute one or both of those points. But I think those two things are really clear. I think he really is... Um, devout and dedicated to his Christianity, um, and especially to sort of his Franciscan notion of Christianity. Um, and I think he is a dedicated Aristotelian. He reads Aristotle in kind of an unusual sense. He reads them, he reads Aristotle um, quite differently than a lot of his contemporaries read Aristotle, but he really thinks Aristotle's picture of reality is generally the right one. And in that way, he's a very similar 
to Aquinas, Bonaventure, Duns Scotus, these other great medieval Catholic theologians, Christian theologians, right? The place where Occam really, I think, deviates from all of them, and this maybe even goes back into the story of, like, why does Occam feature as a villain so much in so many of these stories? Occam has no sympathies, I don't think, for, uh, for Neoplatonism. So Plato generally, but especially sort of some of the Neoplatonic elements that end up infused in the Christian tradition through people like Augustine, through people like the writer Pseudo-Dionysius, who was sort of an important Greek uh, uh, negative theologian of the 5th century AD, I think. Um, through Augustine, through Dionysius, through Boethius, a lot of Neoplatonism comes into the Christian tradition, and Occam, I think, has no sympathies for, for Neoplatonism whatsoever. And so a lot of the doctrines that are sort of characteristic of Neoplatonism are ones Occam just refuses to countenance. Um, the idea that, like, being or existence comes in degrees doesn't seem to be a thing that makes any sense to him. The idea that truth comes in degrees, I think even more so, is something he's radically opposed to. The idea that the divine nature or that God could be necessitated in any way. So the Neoplatonic tradition has very strongly the idea that, like, God is necessitated by his nature to act certain ways, maybe even to create certain ways. At least on one reading of Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas thinks God is free whether or not to create. But once God has decided to create, maybe they're like strong necessitations. God has to maximize the amount of good in the created universe or something like this, or maximize the degrees of goodness. Maybe that's Aquinas's view. Um, the idea that our choices as human beings are necessitated or determined by the decisions of our intellect. All of those are sort of doctrines characteristic with Neoplatonism. All of them you find in other medieval thinkers like Aquinas, Bonaventure, Scotus steps away from a couple of them, but still has a real strong Neoplatonic streak. Um, Occam just rejects it all. And I think that's, if anything, sort of functions to make Occam sort of a nice villain in the history of theology, in the history of Christian thought. Um, he's one of the first really robust anti-Platonists in the tradition. And depending on where you fall on whether or not the injection of Platonism into Christianity was sort of a key uh, uh, success story or maybe a key failure, um, as I know certain some of us in the Protestant tradition look back on that moment and think, oh, Platonism was where it kind of all went wrong. Um, you, you can sort of start seeing why Occam becomes a villain in a lot of narratives and maybe a tiny bit of a hero in some. Earlier when we were talking about uh, universals and nominalism, you, you made a, a comment in passing that some of this seems esoteric. And so what, what would you say to the person who... They say, well, all of this talk about, you know, medieval theology and everything, it, it doesn't matter in the 21st century. I don't need to spend my time reading. What would be your sales pitch for going back to these medieval thinkers and reading them? And then part two to that question, um, do you have any places that you would recommend someone start if they want to get their feet wet when it comes to reading someone like Occam or, or Thomas or Bonaventure, whoever it may be? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Um, so... To the first part of the question, why care? Um, I think there are two different kinds of answers that can be given to that. One is uh, uh, one is sort of generic and sort of applies to um, 
a lot of thinkers in particular. And a second is sort of more specific, and especially thinking about uh, uh, thinking about these thinkers, not just as philosophers, but about Christian theologians specifically. So, look, I mean, there's sort of some generic truths that, like, ent to entirely understand the present, you do really have to understand the past that brought us here. And um, for those of us who consider ourselves Protestant um, in one way, shape, or form, like, the story of the Protestant Reformation starts a couple of hundred years before Luther in people like Scotus and Occam. And in some ways, their understanding, their reconceptualizing of God's freedom, of the nature of grace, the nature of the sacraments, starts putting us on the path that leads to people like Luther and Calvin and Huss and the other early reformers. Um, I think there are sort of some of those just biographical facts that I started with. I think there's something important, there's an important lesson to be drawn just from Occam's biography about sort of the importance of free expression and free thought. Um, a plea, he makes a plea in one of his last works after he's exiled, after he's, uh, um, after he's writing all these works, after he's been excommunicated in exile. He has this like passage that I actually used as the, uh, as the frontispiece dedication in the book. In, in my recent book, um, he has a plea that we should judge works not on the basis of who their authors are, but on the thoughts that are within them. And I think there's something really important to that. And especially as we as Protestants look back on people who were excommunicated for putting forward theological views that maybe in the end we actually think, well, you know what, when he said that it's actually up to God's grace how the economy of salvation works, and there's nothing fixed and necessary about the nature of these precise sacraments. It's what saves us is God's free and unbridled grace, and however God chooses to put that into practice, that's on God's side, not on ours. Um, I think we as Protestants should read that and be like, yeah, and he was right about that, and the papal commissions that called those things false and heretical we might want to say, oh, maybe we should be a little bit more open to remembering, even in our own day, um, be a little bit more reluctant to to slam on the heresy button or say, oh, that view doesn't fit with the accepted theology of my own day. And then there's a broader, here's even a broader message for us as Christians. Um, sometimes I think it's hard to get students really excited about esoteric debates in the history of philosophy, but in the history of theology, we believe that Christianity is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, because we believe God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so it's really easy for us, I think, as Christians to get caught up in whatever the hot-button issue in our own generation is. And sometimes reading historical theology is useful to remind us that the church has not always seen things the way we do, and things that we see as sine qua nons or super important might have been entirely out of uh, the scope of uh, historical authors. So um, I'll sort of throw out just one um, bugbear of my own and then I'll go on. Um, as Protestants, um, I've been in, I've been a, uh, I've been in a lot of different kinds of Protestant churches and in a lot of Protestant circles, um, there's a lot of worry about exactly how we think of the nature of Scripture, in particular, how we think of it as the nature as the Word of God. But when you do historical theology, when you read some, you realize that like 
prior to, I don't even know when it started, maybe the 1600s, maybe later, prior to some date, nobody ever referred to Scripture as the Word of God. The Word of God was Christ incarnate. It was the second person of the Trinity that became incarnate, I should say. Um, so when medieval writers read, when medieval Christians read Hebrews and they read that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, they all think that means the second person of the Trinity is living and active. And so it's interesting, these things that we think of as obvious proof texts for our own theological views, sort of reading, uh, reading theology historically helps us remember not every reader of Christianity always read those texts the same way we do. And I think that's important both to sort of um, uh, be a little bit more, um, a little bit more, I, I hate to use the word tolerant because it's sort of so cliche, but... Um, uh, be more open to what God is doing in the unity of the church across generations. That if we're all sort of unified in Christ, man, Christ has way more imagination than apparently I do. So give me your top two to three resources on Occam that are like secondary. And then what are the primary resources that we should read if we're really interested in Occam? Yeah. Oh, this is, this is a hard question. Um, so secondary resources, there is one absolute excellent secondary resource. Um, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, um, the philosopher Marilyn McCord Adams, who very sadly passed away a handful of years ago, she was a wonderful, wonderful theology, uh, theologian and philosopher. Um, she wrote a giant two-volume big work on Occam's philosophical views. Um, if you really want to do nothing but read about Occam's philosophy for like a year straight, you can go pick up Marilyn Adams's two big two volume Occam. Um, if you want sort of a much gentler introduction, um, there is um, a small one volume book. I think it's called Occam Explained um, by the philosopher Rondo Keel from about 10 years ago. Um, I think published by Open Court Press. Um, that should be sort of, I think, pretty inexpensively available. And that's kind of a nice, breezy, easy read, like, oh, okay, here's a little bit of his ethics, here's a little bit of his his nominalism and theory of universals, um, a tiny bit of his politics, kind of all in one nice, um, uh, compact volume. Um, I would urge, I think I'd tell most people those would be the places to start with Rondo Keel's little volume, and then if you really want to dive deep into, into the weeds... Um, Marilyn Adams's big two volume. Um, as far as primary texts, um, there's uh, there are a number of primary a number of Occam's texts in English. Fewer of them than uh, would be would be nice. So something like maybe ten percent of Occam's corpus or so is available in English, um, and. For, the, for listeners of this podcast in particular, if you're interested in the history of theology, sort of history of ethics, things like that, um, I hate to give a self-plug because I am constitutively uh, uh, opposed to such things. But um, I uh, published a one-volume book. I published a book a uh, year ago, year and a half ago now, um, through Cambridge Press that's called... Uh, what is the title of it? I've forgotten the title of my own book. Oh, there we go. Um, William of Ockham, Questions on Virtue, Goodness, and the Will. 
Um, unfortunately, it's only available in hardcover right now. I'm working with the publishers, hoping to get a paperback out in the next year or so. Um, and the hardback, as academic hardbacks are, is ridiculously expensive. So, but if you want to know more about Occam's Theology and Ethics, you should get your local academic library to purchase a copy of my book, Occam, uh, Questions on Virtue, Goodness, and the Will. And then you should check it out. You should not spend the, like, $105 yourself to pick up a copy on Amazon. That's, that is obscene. Um, I'm sure my publisher loves me saying that about their, about their pricing strategy. Uh, it's okay. We, we say that about them all the time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, if you want sort of a single one-volume um, uh, place for primary texts, it's literally, I think, the only really good thing right now on the market for... Um, uh, uh, for the theology and the ethics. Awesome. Well, man, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about Occam. I think we could spend two more hours discussing him. So hopefully we whetted your appetite. If you're listening, you can go get these resources, especially tell your library to buy his book um, on Occam, Questions on Virtue, Goodness, and Will, because it costs you absolutely nothing, and it benefits everyone. So go ahead and do that. I recommend uh, that as a, a good resource. I've skimmed through it myself and it looks really interesting and helpful. So thanks for doing the work that you're doing. Thanks for going over all this and for everybody who's been listening. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we will talk to you guys soon. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas Podcast today. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.